Formal demand for the surrender of Fort Sumter, the refusal of Major Anderson, the bombardment probably to commence immediately. The New York Times, April 12, 1861. <clears throat> Mic check, one, two, one, two. Okay, bring an introduction right here. The Ordinary Times, check, one, two. Stories for people who only attend church on Christmas and Easter where we explore the parallel narratives between the good news and the good newspaper. Yes. If you were listening and wondering what that annoying beeping sound was towards the end, it was indeed an SOS type of emergency Morse code. And I've been practicing it because I just came back in town on Spirit Airlines and you never know when you might need to uh, call a little emergency flying on Spirit. But nevertheless, I was flying back from a family wedding. My niece got married in Houston and going back into Texas means that me, Louisiana boy, was returning to the South. One thing about the South is that there are still an underlying understanding of behavioral codes that still operate even if it's at the back of your head. There's a wariness that you walk with. And that's because it is a place that's still reverberating with the implications of the Civil War. That brings us to a New York Times article entitled, The War Imminent, from April 12th, 1861. The play-by-play -play was reported via a telegraph in Morse code from Charleston, South Carolina. It was live reporting of the final hours before the first shots of the Civil War. First, we as readers are given the earliest transmissions from the field reporter. Charleston. Wednesday, April 10th. The floating battery is now in position, commanding the barbette guns of Fort Sumter. It carries two 34-pounders, two 42-pounders, and 64 men. The Federal steamers are expected tonight. The city is filled with troops. The author holds out hope that the pending hostilities can be resolved through representatives. Any progress would accompany negotiating Fort Sumter's custody. Next, there's a space of one day between that initial entry and the second one in the article. And it is filled with the curious nature of reading the tense hourly play-by-play -play of a live event that you already know the ending of. The air is dense with dramatic irony. As a contemporary reader and the Southerner, I am privileged with knowledge of what occurred the next day, the next year, and the next century. As a Black Southerner, I am acutely aware of the implications 
that reverberate to this very day. The author's fading hope over the article brings his fears of the future in alignment with my knowledge of the past. What started with the secession would not be resolved with concessions. Finally, a series of journalistic sketches revealed to the reader the rapidly unfolding situation over a 24-hour period. Charleston, Thursday, April 11th. An officer has just arrived from Sullivan's Island that informs me that three steamers were seen hovering off the coast yesterday for a considerable time. Major Anderson fired a signal gun at 10 o'clock a.m. An opening on Fort Sumter by the batteries is expected every moment. The battery is crowded with people who wait in anxious expectancy. The troops continue to pour into the city, and all business is suspended. The author has seemingly resigned from any hope that the tensions between the two belligerent factions can be resolved through negotiations. And as the twilight hours began to wane, the fates marched closer to a military campaign. Now those first shots did not signify the separation of the southern states into the Confederacy, because that had already occurred some time before. Rather, it symbolized a violent national breakup, a damnable divorce, and a dissolution of a union that was under the illusion that both sides somehow stood for freedom. And yet, in the beginning of those dark times, there is still a comparison to the light of Scripture found in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 4, verses 12 through 17. In it we find Jesus dealing with his own national history, both distant and immediate. And in the middle of it all, he finds meaning in the words of an ancient prophet who spoke to the woes of war, civil divisions, military melees, and political strife during his own time. Yet Jesus took that inspiration and proclaimed a peaceful invasion following the inundating militaristic ones. Gospel The Gospel according to Matthew, chapter 4, verses 12 through 17. Now when Jesus had heard that John was cast into prison, he departed into Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is upon the sea coast, in the borders of Zabulon and Nephthalim. First, we as readers are given an early account of Jesus' travels in the missionary field. Christ's early ministry was fueled by the battery of its positioning in relation to John the Baptist. His complementary belief in the forthcoming Savior carried with it a need for a Messiah. But it had been hundreds of years since anyone had heard that role being filled 
And that is when you understand what the word Messiah means. You see, in the 2,000 or so years since, we have come to hear that word as meaning a person claiming to be God. But John's listeners heard it as the Hebrew word for king. The phrase may seem to be fraught with less danger when you consider it that way, until you understand that these were people who already had kings and governors and emperors. And their cities were filled with troops for those kings and governors and emperors. And John's listeners were cognizant of prior Hebrew kings, including those would-be kings, and their subsequent fates. Their ancestors had survived wars and civil wars surrounding those past kings. So the gospel writer writes to a people who are holding out hope in a coming Messiah whose success would only be due to being a divine representative. Those are the expectations that accompanied Jesus as he departed for Galilee. Act 1 of the Hostilities begins with a government seizure. In a policing action, the local government authority took custody of his nemesis, John the Baptist. Now when Jesus had heard that John was cast into prison, since the times of the last prophets of the Old Testament, a Jewish state had been reenacted under the Maccabees, but like the Roman Empire had done in so many other local kingdoms around the world, an alliance soon turned into an occupation. In effect, Judea was slowly becoming a Roman province, which was overseen by a Roman governor named Pilate. That post-Old Testament state of Judea originally encompassed ancient Judah, but then annexed towns in the old realm of the northern kingdom of Israel. The new name for this heavily Gentile district was Galilee, and its king, in name only, was Herod, a Roman-appointed Idumean. He was a ruler who arrested John the Baptist. He departed into Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum. Jesus responded by taking John's place in the general area where his arrest took place. In Capernaum, he gathered disciples, some who had been John's, and in doing so, Christ understood that he would eventually suffer the same fate as the Baptist. Now, as far as the writer of Matthew is concerned, John wasn't the only prophet that Jesus was purposefully patterning himself after. Christ followed the footsteps of one and the foretelling of another. Which is upon the sea coast in the borders of Zabulon and Naphtali. The Lord framed his ministry by mapping out the foreshadowing of an Old Testament forerunner. The teacher traveled to the far reaches of Herod's tetrarchy that was foreseen in Isaiah's prophecy, Galilee of the Gentiles. And that brings us right back to 1861, because John the Baptist wasn't the only traveling preacher ever taken into custody. This one may have not been at Fort Sumter, but it was the story of an invasion in Indiana, which was followed by an arrest like John's. Even though it was the same year as the start of the Civil War, 
it was a peaceful invasion following the militaristic one. In May 1861, the preacher, former slave, abolitionist, and women's rights suffragist, Sojourner Truth, was arrested for going to speak in Indiana. Now, it wasn't due to her stance against slavery because, of course, Indiana was a Union state. No, it was because, despite their side in the war, Indiana's 1851 Constitution stated in Article 13 that, quote, No Negro or mulatto shall come into or settle in the state after the adoption of this Constitution. Sojourner didn't risk being arrested for going to Indiana to preach. She risked imprisonment for simply going to Indiana. And just like her preaching predecessors, John and Jesus, she went anyway. Those are the expectations that accompany those that follow Jesus to their own Galilee. Gospel. The Gospel according to Matthew. That it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Esaias the prophet, saying, The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people which sat in the darkness saw great light. And to them which sat in the region and shadow of death, light is sprung up. Next, there is a space of about 700 years between that initial prophet who prophesied of Galilee and the second one who provided light into Galilee. And there's a culminating nature of Jesus' knowing Isaiah's Galilean prophecies and him already knowing that he himself was the Galilean who would fulfill them. As heir to his prophetic mantle, the text is dense with dramatic foreshadowing. As a conscientious reader of scripture, Jesus was privileged with knowledge of what occurred the next day the next year, and the next century. As the fulfillment of scripture, he was acutely aware of the implications for his personal life and death. And the gospel author's fervent hope over the whole account brings Isaiah's faith in the future into alignment with Jesus's knowledge of the eternal. And what started as a prophecy would be manifested physically. Act 2 of this homily begins with a section reminding the reader about the earlier concessions that were made after a secession. It will also use an unfamiliar name for the prophet Isaiah. That it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Esaias. The prophet. The King James Version translators use the name Isaias, the Greek name, instead of the English Isaiah for the Hebrew prophet, whose real name is Yeshayahu. 
Meanwhile, Jesus, also known as Yehoshua or Yeshua, is himself translating this Old Testament prophecy for his New Testament context. The quote begins by citing geography. In Jesus' time, it was Galilee, and in Isaiah, it was the northern kingdom of Israel. But there was an even earlier history, saying, The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The prophecy reaches way back and refers to the region by its tribal affiliations, Zebulun and Naphtali. Because before these lands were known as Roman provinces or Jewish kingdoms, they were the children of Israel and sons of Jacob. When Isaiah prophesied to the two divided and eventually fallen Jewish kingdoms, he spoke of the light of family unification. The prophet spoke of a golden time when a Jewish king would again unify the lands into one shining Jewish kingdom. The people which sat in the darkness saw great light, and to them which sat in the region and shadow of death, light is sprung up. Ironically, Jesus lived in a time when another unifying kingdom had come and gone. That may not be familiar to you if you are a Protestant, but if you are a Catholic, the Maccabees are part of scripture. And to all Christians, it is part of history. Yet the Gospel writer doesn't understand that Middle Kingdom as being part of Isaiah's prediction. Once again, I am reminded of Sojourner Truth's conceding to imprisonment in Indiana because Isaiah wasn't the only prophet warning of concessions. Likewise, Indiana wasn't the only Union territory that held anti-black stipulations in their founding documents. Even a place like Oregon enacted black exclusion laws in 1844 that was ratified in 1849 and 1857. This was a weird loophole where new additions to the American Manifest Destiny could simultaneously deny the odiousness of being a slave state while upholding the tenets of white supremacy. This in spite of the Christian nation talk that you hear concerning our American foundation from both American Catholics and American Protestants. Yet, it is part of all of our history. On the contrary, the gospel doesn't understand that American empire of manifest destiny as being a partaker in Isaiah's principles of the kingdom of heaven. So God's sojourning prophet of truth traveled to make the word of the Lord heard through her voice. She who started as property came to proclaim Isaiah's prophecy. Gospel the Gospel According to Matthew From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Finally, in a short descriptive sketch, the Gospel reveals to the reader 
the rapidly unfolding situation over the length of one verse. Christ answered the officer's arrest of John the Baptist and subsequent imprisonment by informing those listening that he would continue John's ministry. Not only would he say that he had seen the kingdom of God coming like John had yesterday, but Jesus would make a considerable change to its timing. For Christ said that the kingdom of heaven was at hand. In this he signaled that this kingdom's king or messiah was here and the opening of heaven's kingdom came with the expectations for a change now the gospel authors seemingly resisted any impulse to temper the tensions between the reality of god in the here and now and the reign of god in the sweet by and by and now as Jesus' words fully sink in, it should cause us listeners to review how we think and live then. Act 3 of the homecoming begins with Jesus at home in a region rich with national and personal history. Jesus had been raised in Galilee of the Gentiles beyond Jordan by the way of the sea. And in fact, by the way of that river Jordan, he had been baptized by John. From that time, Jesus began to preach. Of course, John was more than just a baptizer. He was a prophet and he was a preacher. It was the latter that found him in jail and later on find him dead. It was the latter preaching that Jesus would set out to do. Patterning himself after the prior preacher, Jesus appropriated his primary premise. Christ repeated John the Baptist's controversial call to conversion. And to say, repent. That oft-repeated word, repent, is ripe with religious worth. It means to change, whether by reversing direction, personal reflection, reconsidering actions, or recharting your course. Christ then followed that plea for personal change with a promise with political potential. In the middle of this place, with imperial and tribal implications, the Messiah reminded them of the kingdom. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Yet there was something that differed in this kingdom from any earlier Hebrew kingdoms of Judah, Israel, or even Judea. The king of this kingdom would hail from heaven, and the implications of this kingdom would be eminent. Those concluding implications crafted the convictions of Sojourner Truth in her campaign for the conscience of the citizens of Indiana. Jesus is recorded as delivering his message in nine words, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And sadly, Sojourner's Indiana speech was not recorded at all by her supporters. Yet even with zero known words, her actions speak the same as Jesus's nine. Remember the great preacher and imitator of Jesus Christ, St. Francis of Assisi is known for the quote, preach the gospel at all times, 
when necessary, use words. Sojourner Truth preached with her mouth, but proclaimed even more powerfully with her body. And when she gave it over to be in prison so that African Americans could be free, when she sacrificed her liberty so that white Americans could understand freedom, when she lent her life so that the American empire would see the gospel of God's kingdom, as Jesus's words filled her voice, her fellow Americans understood their choice. Formal demand for the surrender of Fort Sumter, the refusal of Major Anderson, the bombardment probably to commence immediately. So in a way, both of those stories from 1861 are about choosing what message to put out. Because the reporter in South Carolina and the preacher in Indiana were both sending out their own kind of SOS signals. You knew that I was going to call that back, didn't you? They reported from different sides of the Mason-Dixon line, but both understood that a war was imminent. But Sojourner Truth understood the situation on a deeper, more spiritual level. Because when General Beauregard's forces fired on the Union fort, it was not just an attack on a sovereign country, but on the kingdom of the sovereign God. Because Jesus chose to be the prince of peace. God decided to be the savior of Hebrew slaves. And the spirit committed to mysteriously moving through mercy. And I believe that those who are in the Holy Ghost custody will primarily preach through acts of empathy. And where darkness has demanded of its victims concessions, God promises his light as a possession. So wherever Jesus' kingdom campaigns, the kindness of God will reign. Because I was reminded this week when I flew down to Texas of that great war. Unlike the Civil War, this one is not a past one, but a pending one. A war that is yet imminent. And unlike the war between the states, this one involves a peaceful invasion. The kingdom of God is making war against war. The Son of God is holding captivity captive. The love of God who sojourned among us and then died to save us will then make all of us truly free. <laughs>